You're listening to an ACA podcast. These three artist talks were recorded in association with the opening weekend of the exhibition Like a Wheel That Turns, the 2022 McFarland Commissions, which is presented at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne from the 2nd of July until the 4th of September 2022. Like a Wheel That Turns, the third edition of a multi-year partnership with the McFarland Fund, which supports the commissioning of ambitious new projects by contemporary emerging to mid-career artists. The exhibition includes the work of eight artists, Nadia Hernandez, Lucina Lane, Gian Manick, Betty Muffler, Jean Pasco White, Jason Fu, JD Reformer, and Esther Stewart. Like a Wheel That Turns is co-curated by ACA's associate curator, Annika Christensen, and artistic director and CEO, Max Delaney. In this recording, we hear from three of the exhibiting artists, Betty Muffler, who speaks in Pittenjura with translations into English by Priscilla Singer, as well as JD Reformer and Lucina Lane. Each of the artists are in conversation with Max Delaney. Aka acknowledges the Wanjuri people of the Kulin Nation as sovereign custodians of the land on which we work and welcome visitors who have cared for country and culture over millennia and continue to do so. We extend respect to ancestors and elders past and present and to all First Nations people into the podcast. To hear more programs like this, please subscribe to the Aka Melbourne podcast wherever you get your podcasts and sign up to Aka's newsletter at aka.melbourne for all new releases and forthcoming programs. Like a wheel that turns, reflects upon painting practices which extend beyond the frame and from the realm of the studio into the world at large. Through the work of eight artists, Nadia Hernandez, Lucina Lane, Gian Manik, Betty Muffler, Jean Pascoe-White, Jason Fu, JD Reformer and Esther Stewart. Acknowledging painting's ability to speak across generations, to personal, social and familial histories and connections, as much as to cultural and artistic references and legacies, and to accommodate multiple modes of time and perception simultaneously, Like a Wheel That Turns brings together a diverse group of artists whose work might collectively derive from a studio-based practice, but who share an interest in the intersection between painting and other materials, forms or disciplines, including architecture, literature, performance, ecology, music, healing, and the wider field of human relations. Today we will hear directly from Betty, Lucina and JD about their ambitious new works that we are honoured to present um, and they've created especially for this exhibition. We will move through into the galleries, um, we'll move from this gallery into uh, gallery one uh, following um, Betty and uh, who I'm also really welcome to, um, really pleased to welcome um, Priscilla Singer who will be translating for Betty um, this afternoon. Priscilla herself is an accomplished artist um, and uh, works at Iwancha, and her work is also currently on display at the APY galleries in Docklands at the moment, which opened on Thursday night, and she has a wonderful new painting in that exhibition. Um, just before we move through the galleries, a quick note of housekeeping. Um, please be aware of your surroundings, um, as there, were, uh, there are works um, underfoot, and um, also um, please, if you could t take care just to be socially distanced, and we also um, welcome and encourage the wearing of masks um, if you are able to. So it now gives me um, great pleasure to introduce um, highly respected 
senior woman artist, Betty Muffler, who works at Iwantra Arts in Indulkana, with a practice that spans painting, drawing, printmaking, and jumpy weaving, or native grass weaving. Betty is a renowned nunkery, a traditional healer, having learnt this practice from her aunties which were ha and handed down through her father's side. Betty grew up at the Ernabella Mission following the displacement and deaths of family members in the aftermath of British nuclear testing at Maralinga and Emu Field in the 1950s and 1960s. Betty has been shortlisted for a number of grants and awards, including the Wynne Prize at the Archive of New South Wales in 2021, the Hadley's Art Prize in Hobart in 21, the Arthur Guy Memorial Painting Prize at the Bendigo Art Gallery in 21, and the John Fries Award, Sydney in 2018. Betty was also the recipient of the Telstra Nazia Emerging Artist Award at the Museum of Art and Art Gallery of Northern Territory in Darwin in 2017. And I think we can say she has well and truly emerged when we see a painting such as the one we see behind us. So without further ado, Betty, it's um, a pleasure to welcome you to Acker and Priscilla, and um, thank you for being here. And perhaps for, for our guests, um, in the first um, instance, I might ask if, um, if you could perhaps introduce us to your painting, um, which actually is a representation of country. Um, it is aligned with your birthplace, uh, Yalangu, south of Wataru in South Australia. So perhaps to begin, it would be wonderful to hear in your own words what we see in this painting. About the painting about the country. My father's country, this is about, I'm talking about. My father is a Ngangari and then she passed it to me. Then I'm looking after that Ngangari. My father's country and his, um, I'm doing things for them, looking after that country, he said. Oh, 
with my family and my brothers and sisters and cousins. I was thinking about to do a painting about this painting about my father's dreaming. My place is Emu and my father's is equal. It's there forever. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Priscilla. Um, speaking about the eagle, the ancestral story or the creation story of the eagle, which um, you have inherited from your father, um, when we think about the eagle, it has a very big perspective. And um, Betty's paintings are painted usually on the ground, looking from above. And the eagle is also looking from above and has a very vast perspective or view. Can, can, we, can you perhaps um, describe how much country are we looking at in this painting? My dreaming about the eagles always looking down, then I picture it in my mind, in my soul. That's my father's place, and next to that's my country on the bottom. So traveling around, my father's traveling around 
country to country, and I'm with them always to see the view of the places, mountains, trees, and water, and like meeting other families in a, in other west and north and south, east. And um, Betty, this is the, the largest painting you have made on your own, um, and it's a very physical painting. Um, I imagine um, it's an extraordinary feat to make it technically. H how do you make this painting? What is the process for making this painting? And um, yeah, how do you go about it? <laughs> I was standing and painting it, the big painting here. I think you have a stick, you have a, a broomstick with a paintbrush at the end, is that correct? Yeah, I had a long stick with a painting on it. Brush. I had a long stick brush and from that I was drawing in it, making it. Yeah, I was in the middle and drawing the dots and the painting around in the middle of the center there. And um, Betty, you are um, a senior woman and a nunkery, so you are a spiritual healer. And I was wondering if you could um, introduce us to the to the idea or the concept of open hands. Oh, I can see it, and I got a hope on and to heal people. I can show my hands with that open. And um, Betty, with your healing, you have spoken about um, returning spirit to, to bodies and to people, but um, is there a relationship between your, your um, 
practice as a nunkery and your practice as a painter. Is there a relationship between the healing of the body and the healing of country? When I'm doing a painting, then people come to me to, when they got sick to, to come and touch the head and the spirit. Then they get fixed and they go home. I was thinking about at home and I'm gonna pass to my grandchildren about that Ngangari and the painting they be for their future. Before we conclude and move through into the next gallery, I'm wondering if there might be any questions, just one or two questions from the floor, if, if anyone was interested to ask a, a specific question. Um, this is Lucina. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask about how colour kind of um, comes into the painting and yeah like the use of the purple and the whites how either like uh, yeah I guess just how colour works in the work. Oh, I knew the Bangani color, and Angani purple, Manonia white, Mun blue, Nangro, and Yoduba, Colindangro, and Yoduba, Togorba, Kalangro. I choose the color for myself, and this is the way I like to do it with my color on my dreams. It, it's an extraordinary painting, um, which looks like a big, vast, ostensibly white painting, but there's such vibrancy, um, and it's so alive with its purples and yellows and blues and pinks, it's actually a very, very intense living ecology. It also seems to have an optical effect, which when one comes close to the painting, it has a kind of shimmer, which feels like the sort of power of the landscape. Oh, this is a 
I always do the color of the place and uh, like waters and the chocolate, everything into my spirit. Um, if there's one more question, or otherwise we can um, move through to Lucina's room. In that case, I would like to um, ask you all once again um, just to say how honoured we are, Betty, to be able to present your work here at ACCA. It's an extraordinary work. We really look forward to presenting this um, to our audiences over the next two months, and we um, are really honoured to have you in Melbourne, and thank you also, Priscilla Singer, for translating. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Priscilla. hear from Melbourne Nam-based artist Lucina Lane, who speaks about her untitled wall painting, subtitled with the phrase, an oddly sophisticated self-organised world. Lucina Lane deftly combines painterly poetics and materiality with resourcefulness and improvisation, salvaging and repurposing found materials and histories, whether art historical, social, contextual or linguistic, into conceptually charged works which resonate beyond their time and place. Lane completed a Bachelor of Fine Art Honours at the Victorian College of the Arts, VCA, the University of Melbourne in 2013. Lane has been shortlisted for a number of awards, including the Keith and Elizabeth Murdoch Travelling Fellowship in 2017 and the Redlands Art Prize in 2018. Perhaps just to start off, I wonder if you might, in the first instance, um, perhaps introduce us to the kind of research methodology that led to the sort of conception of this work? Um, so I guess uh, for this show, I was just trying to think, I guess I started off by thinking about ACCA as a space and um, like I studied at the VCA, so I was always pretty kind of aware of ACCA, would like come across, just had that kind of, I guess, relationship of, um, I don't know, I guess when you're studying it feels quite distant, Acker, but um, yeah, I think it's really nice that they're really close. So anyway, so um, yeah, I guess this is probably not answering your research methodologies question, but um, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I guess I started I don't really know what research methodologies means, but... Well, I mean, when you came into the gallery and we were yeah. talking about the exhibition, I mean, I think the first thing that you asked us for were, like, catalogues of exhibition histories at Acker, and yeah, you started yeah. pouring through our archives, and then, yeah. and then you went into the store, into the storeroom. Yeah, I mean, like, prior to even the, I guess, what you'd call research on-site at Acker, um, I think we had that conversation about the previous ACCA. Um, it, it all kind of started on a, like a strange kind of tangent, this show, I think. So Lisa Radford over there. <laughs> um, 
she, we were talking about a show that happened at ACCA pre this ACCA, in the original ACCA, which it was, it's in the domain, like the botanical gardens, right? Um, so it's still there and it's this kind of, I guess, like colonial cottage. Um, it's next to, I think it might be like, was it like Governor Latrobe's cottage or something random? In, anyway, in the botanical garden. So ACCA started in the 80s as in the site of a little cottage um, and then moved here in, or oh, this building was built in 2002. So I guess like in a, a kind of making a big loop, those original thoughts were to do with this kind of idea of scale or thinking about scale. Um, and I was just kind of fascinated. I think the first kind of point of thought I was fascinated with, so from that tangent of that early show, which was pre-ACCA, it was a show called Pre-Millennials or Pre-Millennium, pre um, Ronnie Van Hout and Michael Stevenson show from 1997. Um, so yeah, so I like went and visited that old ACCA um, and I think, yeah, I was thinking about this, like the idea of scale and my mind was kind of blown that um, it went from being a cottage to being like this giant kind of Kunsthalle kind of um, building. And I guess I was thinking about like, what was the vision that people had for art for the future? So, you know, early 2000s. Um, and then, you know, now we're 20 years on from that period, which is kind of like the period of like contemporary art and um, really kind of like globalized, you know, like all the art fair kind of art, like high production values, lots of art produced that's not, um, you know, that the artist doesn't necessarily have a hand in the production of. And um, I guess that's not really like a value judgment, but it was just something I was like thinking about. Um, and so, yes, I guess that kind of brings it back to this work, which um, I guess deals with the scale of this building, um, but uses uh, like a kind of range of sources and, and material um, from, yeah, different kind of sources, I guess. But um, yeah, like essentially the colored area of the painting is, um, I use the template of a kind of modernist easel painting from 1949 by an Australian artist, Frank Hinder. Um, and yeah, I guess there's like a backstory, but maybe, um, yeah, it starts with thinking about scale. And um, I mean, before we even get to the, um, the Hinder reference yeah. and the textual fragment, there's yeah. also a kind of another historical reference, a more contemporary historical reference. Mm. Um, Sticking just quickly with sort of research into the institution, you also yeah. went into our storeroom and you found a whole yeah. lot of um, found a whole lot of paint. You found a whole lot of um, leftover paint from previous exhibitions, yeah. um, which you took home. Yeah. That, that became the sort of perhaps the primary materiality of the work in the initial sort yeah. of thinking. So I think from that thinking about the prior ACCA, that then led me to like come to this current ACCA and poke around a little bit and look through their catalogues. There's a really great archive they have online that have, you know, all the shows are pretty much documented. Um, and yeah, from wanting to come in, have a look around, look at the space, look behind the scenes. Um, I guess I wasn't really looking for anything, I guess, you know, when you're kind of thinking about things or 
I don't know, you're not looking for any particular material necessarily, but um, uh, it's kind of like just seeing what, what is there, what exists in the space um, or in the site. Um, and yeah, so uh, Aka happened to have a lot of leftover paints from previous exhibitions. Um, I think maybe before I like came across those paints, in thinking about scale, I was also, um, I was trying to think like about, I wanted to work with the scale and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I kind of knew I didn't want to necessarily make a big object or something that, you know, would have to be stored or um, kind of find another home. And so then it kind of came to me that uh, doing like, using the medium of like a wall painting would be really good because you can make something really large, but you can use a small amount of material to do it. Um, and so that was kind of, I just was like, oh, I really want to, um, yeah, work in that medium, which is a jump for me. Like I've never made a, a, a like a mural or a, a wall painting even really. So I wanted to kind of embrace like a formal freedom with what I do and have the ability to maybe like work in any medium ultimately um, and that I hoped the ideas that I'm interested in would carry across the forms and um, so yeah so then when I did find the paint in the Acker storeroom because I'd been thinking about the wall painting already I guess I was like oh that's such an interesting material because um, you know, paint is very generic, like house paint is very generic, it's utilitarian, it's not necessarily an art material, it's not like oil paint or it's not like a rare kind of precious material. Um, and then this particular set of paints came with a particular palette and um, so yeah, as Max said, I kind of said, guys, can I take this home? I'll take it back to the studio, I put it in my car and um, uh, then I just like kind of sat with them, sat with the colours for a while. Um, it took me about a week to get around to opening <laughs> the tins to actually look at them. Um, uh, and yeah, from there it was kind of a slow process over the past few months, figuring out what to do with this kind of very, you know, one, on the one hand generic, but then also really specific material. Yeah. And so, so that speaks on the one hand to the resourcefulness of your practice yeah. and, and actually you are interested in you know, working with an economy of means and um, um, but also that the found paint also referred to as you said like previous exhibitions, yeah. previous artists works and so in effect this exhibition brings sort of the residues or the leftovers of previous institutional histories and previous yeah. artists works. Um, and also, well, the, uh, also the, the building, which I didn't really realise, like some is not just like leftover paint from like exhibitions, but Sam might not be that happy, but some's like, you know, the paint from the foyer or the paint yeah. from like yeah. the bathroom doors. So it's like, yeah, this weird kind of, you know, like everything has had a bit of a life or does have a life currently, or like you said, is already under these walls somewhere. Yeah, I mean, there's always an institutional archaeology yeah. in, the, in the paint, you know, that yeah. is actually painted over each time. and. Um, and I guess that's the kind of memory within the walls of yeah. previous exhibitions. Um, but then you're bringing other memories into the picture. So you've, you've, you know, you've referred to the Frank Hinder painting from yeah. 1949, and then um, we'll come to the text in a minute, mm. but is there anything particular about either the period of mid-century modernist abstraction, non-objective art practice in Australian art history that you're interested in, or is it more a kind of generic found object? As I think it's like, 
it's a bit of both. It's not necessarily like a history that I'm like particularly interested in. Like I'm not, yeah, like an avid fan of that period or anything. But I guess like through making the work and trying to find out what the work, trying to work out what the work will be, like its form, um, I came across that history. Like I didn't know of Frank Hinder and he's an artist with an interesting history. So I guess the making the work involved like a lot of, you know, like learning on my part because like I didn't know, I had an inkling of the, the kind of medium that I wanted to work in, but then I wanted the, in using the found paint with the particular palette, I didn't want to like, you know, a lot of friends who were like listening to me complain about being like stressed were like, oh, just use your like previous plans but paint it in that color that your new, you know, the found colors. And I was like, no, like, it has to kind of come from within the colors that, like, I have or I've been given in a, you know, I've taken with me. Um, uh, I guess in terms of, yeah, the painting being a kind of mid-century modernist painting, I guess. Um, I liked that it's kind of, you know, lots of people probably have seen paintings like this, like it's a type, right? Um, and so I guess, like, while on the one hand it is specific, it's this specific Australian artist, I like that it almost is a generic style that kind of, to me, like, I guess, um, just at, like, my age and stuff points, you know, it's kind of, it's an idea of art or it's like a, it's, you know, the, this, as an easel painting, it's, what like lots of people like would consider to be art, right? Um, so it points back to art, I think, more broadly than any particular like, oh, I love 1949 painting or something. Yeah. And um, you know, painting, you know, frequently and often and inherently, um, you know, speaks to other paintings that have gone before yeah. you know, it. Um, but also, you're speaking to the present and. Yeah. Um, this painting is kind of dynamically syncopated by this really curious um, text. It's a fragment of a text from, a, yeah. from a, an essay by a kind of contemporary artist colleague of yours. Mm. Um, and the text actually spells out an oddly sophisticated, self-organised world. Mm. Um, so I wonder if you could you know, um, talk about the sort of significance okay. and the, the form of that fragment, yeah. text fragment. Um, I will, I'll just say one more thing about the um, using the kind of modernist painting. I guess because I'd been researching a bit of ACA history and you know, thinking about like 80s, 90s Australian art, um, contemporary art um, in general, I kind of liked the idea that <laughs> instead of, you know, taking something from like, say, thinking about a reference from like that Ronnie Van Hout show or something, that the reference or the kind of found template would come from something that existed way before Acker as well. Like, uh, I thought, I don't know, I guess, you know, it's not kind of like overtly like humorous or anything, but I think there's something kind of funny about, yeah, drawing um, something um, from that time period back into this space, which is very much about contemporary art. Um, so yeah, so the text um, comes from this article, which I think was maybe published about three months ago, probably, give or take a month or so. Um, and the article 
it's just kind of like a short rundown of um, uh, in Melbourne, maybe over the, like Melbourne's always had, I think, a very good history and lineage of artist-led and run projects, and it's a really rich history. Um, and yeah, over the last like year or two, I think there's been just like so many small, amazing galleries popping up in people's back gardens and sheds, or in like you know people's studios, things like that. Um, and so yeah, so this article was a rundown of like spaces that are around today, those kind of micro galleries, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I think I liked that um, the phrase, uh, I liked the phrase because I thought it's such a bizarre kind of, um, I liked how it sounded like when I said it in my head and also, you know, like a phrase with three adjectives is so weird. It's like no one really talks like that. It's like when I was saying, I, I was saying, oh, it's kind of like, it feels like like wine or something, but I think what I mean is like, you know, when people describe wine with like 10 adjectives. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I just, the phrase kind of just was like rattling around in my head. I just printed off the, the page of the article and um, then cut out the text and like stuck it on my wall and I was just looking at it. So I was kind of, I don't know, the sources just came together in a kind of natural way in that I was looking, I think I'd already seen like the Hinder painting and was like interested in that because the paint, the Hinder painting from 49 just happened to kind of, if you squinted, it looked like the same colours of the paint that I had. So it was a loose reference but it was kind of enough. Um, and then I, yeah, I liked this phrase, I liked that um, I guess that the Hinder painting is, the reference is, you know, pre-Akka, and then the article is so recent, like in the time that the show is being made, the article has also come about. Um, and yeah, I just thought the phrase had a curious ring to it, and I thought about maybe like um, intersecting them somehow, like I have worked with um, found text in paintings before, so that wasn't that new to me, but um, uh, as I played in the studio, it didn't really work, them, like, you know, the text running through the painting. And so, yeah, just, I had a, a, a miniature, like, small version on my studio wall, and then I was like, oh, maybe it would be nice as a kind of frame for the painting. So, like, they do overlap, obviously, a bit, but, um, yeah, I guess it works more as, like, an additional kind of structure for the work, yeah. And perhaps just one last question from me, and I might welcome my other questions from the floor, but um, just going back to your initial sort of introduction mm. about the question of scale, mm. and obviously this is a, you know, a vast mur scale, sort of mural scale um, painting, wall mm. painting, it's about 12 metres by sort of six, seven metres, um, and uh, you know, it does recall other kinds of mural paintings, you know, we think of Le Corbusier, you think of New Deal murals, you think of 1970s mural painting, um, and the sort of public scale of those. Yeah. Is there anything you know, specific about the sort of public scale that you're interested in? Yeah, I think, um, so from starting from the kind of like original desire of like maybe working in the medium, medium of the like wall painting, you know, like that's kind of more broad. That could be like paint the whole wall or like exhibition design. But then I kind of, yeah, like I, yeah, I had this inkling about like the idea of like the mural, which is kind of, almost it's quite like a daggy or like outdated form of public art in a way. Um, and yeah, there's lots of, you know, like a, a month ago, there was a great Mike Brown mural that was painted over in Collingwood. Like, so yeah, I guess 
the idea of the mural, you know, it has relationships to like being inside and being outside because obviously murals are normally on the outside of a building. Um, Acker, I guess, I don't know, I think in this whole show there's kind of a, almost a theme of like, the, I guess this gallery with Esther's awnings and Jason's house kind of feels like, you know, you could be outside or, you know, it's kind of referencing outdoor space or, yeah, like outside space in the kind of sense of public space, um, meaning like, you know, like uh, general public space, like train stations or like a bar or those kind of spaces. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's just something um, kind of interesting about using, um, yeah, the form of a mural, um, I guess, yeah, it kind of just references maybe those instances that aren't like fine art instances, like instances where you're not necessarily like going to a gallery to see, you know, an exhibition that you know about, but instances where you encounter um, different types of artworks or different types of, yeah, I guess art in more um, kind of day-to-day -day or like low-key kind of ways, like, yeah, walking, you know, like walking down like a road where you just see a bit of like graffiti or you see um, just something outside, but not necessarily like a fine art context, I think. Yeah. Next, we hear from JD Reformer, a Gadigal Neura Sydney-based artist who speaks about the new work they produced for Like a Wheel That Turns, which is titled Fibre Optics, an Intranet of Virtue. Working across a diverse and interdisciplinary practice, including painting, video, performance, sculpture and installation, JD Reformer employs a collage logic, appropriating language, aesthetics and subjects from popular consumer and materialist cultures to create dynamic artworks that interrogate notions of class, race and power within institutions and society at large. Reformer completed a Bachelor of Fine Art Honours in Sculpture, Performance and Installation at the University of New South Wales, Sydney in 2009, and a Master of Fine Arts also at University of New South Wales, Sydney in 2015. Reformer has been the recipient of a number of grants, awards and residencies, including the Fisher Ghost Award, Campbelltown Arts Centre, Sydney, 2017, City of Sydney Leave Work Tenant, William Street Creative Hub, Sydney, 2020, and a Clothing Store Artist Studios Residency, Carriageworks, Sydney, 2019. JD begins by talking through the conceptual process in conceiving of this new work, and in particular, the significance of using coconut as a material in this work. And I've been experimenting with coconuts for maybe about the past five or six years in my practice. And um, the coconut helps with husk felting. So all of these are um, hand felted textiles, which I um, pressed together, essentially massaged into being from coconut husk fiber. Um, and coconuts sort of started seeping into my practice um, because I was researching um, Imelda Marcos for an early project some years ago and um, when she was the first lady of the Philippines um, she was made the Minister of Human Settlements which essentially meant that her husband Ferdinand Marcos gave her a kind of discretionary budget to commission a lot of um, large-scale very modernist architecture, um, architectural projects. So 
she commissioned the Cultural Center of the Philippines, the Manila Film Center, um, these huge, 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 huge infrastructure projects. Um, and then another one was um, this project called the Coconut Palace, um, which she commissioned in 1978 for the papal visit of St. John Paul II. Um, and she kind of conceptualized this project as a kind of um, symbol of the coconut and its importance um, to the sort of economy and the culture of the Philippines. And uh, the building was like, the, the roof was thatched with coconut um, leaves. It was built with coconut lumber, all the furniture, the decorativeness, the, um, the themes were all sort of derived from the coconut shell. Um, and it was, such an extravagant um, uh, thing that the Pope refused to stay there. Um, so it was essentially a, a completely sort of wasted project. But then um, I became really fascinated with the coconut as this sort of material, which could kind of stand in for the sort of like edifice multiplex or edifice complex um, of Emil de Marcos and. I think particular, particularly um, given the sort of contemporary context of um, the, the election of BBM, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., I feel the coconut probably has some new salience um, today. You know, abuse of dynastical kleptocratic power comes as no surprise. And so the coconuts, uh, uh, similarly, they're quite anthropomorphic, they have eyes and a nose and hair, meat, bones. Um, and so they felt like a really great way to a, a sort of like beautifully denuded surface onto which to um, project a lot of different meanings and associations. And Jodie, just before we move perhaps along to the aphorisms themselves, um, can you perhaps introduce us to the sort of the, 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 the semiotics of colour in this work? Um, it's quite simple, the coconut, the, it's, it's a really simple binary between the young and the mature coconut. A young coconut is uh, quite verdant and green and bright um, and juicy, and then a mature coconut is sort of a deeper darker brown. And then the, the t because I, I suppose I was thinking about threads and fibres, and I can conceptualise the wall painting as sort of a, a horizon line which would kind of draw your gaze around the space, but also could sort of function um, uh, as a way to kind of structure sentences and thought across sort of multiple canvases. And then the red was kind of an accident, really. I think I'd sort of originally started painting them in white, but um, just playing with swatches and materials, the red, the red was purely an aesthetic choice, yeah. And speaking of aesthetics too, you've often you've referred to the coconut as being also quite often um, engaged with in you know, wellness industries, in ideals of beauty and other contexts, um, and which might perhaps lead on to the aphorisms themselves, which are drawn from a whole range of sources. So it'd be really you know interesting to hear sort of where those um, those uh, aphorisms derive from. I think some are overheard, some are from your notes, some are from conversations, social media, etc. But but what do the aphorisms represent for you? Um, yeah, the coconut is like its association with like wellness and beauty was like very important to me because also I guess I was like searching for a kind of 
um, a material which didn't have like a purely or singularly ethnographic reading. Um, and I think that kind of uh, con connected with that, where I felt I was personally at with certain ideas um, in my practice. Um, and I think one of those was the sort of like fatigue and the ennui and the kind of precarity of, um, and the place of identity politics within my own work and um, my, my own language as an artist. Um, the, the texts really, the process of recording text has kind of been something that I've been doing for at least maybe the past five years or so. I am, um, or maybe longer actually, I started um, some meme accounts on Instagram many years ago. I started out with a couple of like Britney Spears fan accounts. Um, one of them was like where I would just repost photographs of Britney Spears' t-shirts and so that became like a way of collecting like both images and text at the same time. And then um, another one was an account where I would repost all of the inspirational quotes that she would post on her Instagram. And then um, later I started another account because um, I'd kind of been working in the arts for a while, not just as an artist but like in galleries and was quite an itinerant laborer working in like install or on the bar or cleaning, like just literally whatever I just wanted to be in the arts. Um, and I, um, I guess I was quite fatigued with that and I started this account called Keeping Up With KPIs, which is um, like a meme account and I would essentially collect images of the Kardashians and make little art world, like little art world funnies online and um, as part of that process, um, you, you have to kind of daily, hourly, whenever you're kind of scrolling on Instagram, uh, practice um, recording and diarising all of your kind of interactions. And um, it's quite exhaustive actually, like, you know, after every conversation or any interaction or any social event, you're kind of like going back over and thinking of all the things that you've heard and experienced and seen. Um, and then simultaneously, when you're online and scrolling, you're kind of seeing images and collecting them and diarising them and annotating them and then at some point the two connect and then they become a meme. Um, but that process of recording text and interactions and dialogue has kind of iterated over the past like five years. I just have kept this very exhaustive sort of series of note lists on my phone um, and that's also just developed because I um, I'm not a super studio-based practice, studio-based artist, so I'm quite itinerant in that sense as well. Um, and um, the texts, like, this work I suppose is kind of like uh, all my, my unpublished manuscripts. It's kind of everything that I'm thinking before I post it online and then going through this process of painting, um, uh, I guess I'm also like, I work in visual communications as well, so I'm also very interested in uh, design and typography and typesetting and in the process of typesetting, but then also painting text. Um, it's been an interesting way to kind of develop meaning and associations between not just words in a sentence, but sort of letters in a word as well. Um, and the, the, I suppose the process of collecting text um, is quite um, rhizomatic, like sometimes it's just quotations from television and movies or um, things I've read, um, conversations I've had, just thoughts I've heard. Um, others are 
sort of quotidian or like everyday phrases that we, we use and understand where I've kind of like pushed it and pulled it to kind of push it into absurdity. Um, and then that sort of notion of like semantic satiation where you say a word over and over and over again and it kind of loses all meaning and starts to sound quite absurd. Um, and then, yeah, I think, and then in, in terms of the installation, the kind of, the groupings that I've created um, kind of sort of dwell on kind of power and the, the various ways that power is traded, exchanged, or um, within the world, but also particularly this little microcosm of the art world. Um, and then there's sort of a sort of section on the language that's risen and materialized through COVID, um, like now more than ever, and um, essential work. Um, and, um, and then there are other elements which are kind of just like, if you can imagine a sort of like, don't talk to me before I have my coffee type phrases, like live, laugh, love, where I've like replaced love with LARP, which stands for live action role play, but it kind of um, is a phrase that's used contemporaneously to kind of like describe people who are probably disingenuous or posturing. Um, don't say gay, say F word, is kind of like my crucifix up there. Um, and it's like my way of, I guess, reclaiming kind of homophobic language and um, I quite like it. Um, and yeah, I think that's... And Jenny, just really, um, you know, speaking about memes and repetition and seriality, um, production process itself is a form of serial painting um, and there's a kind of, you know, intense materiality and intense sort of production line process through stenciling and through the felting process and then through the installation itself and so I, I wonder if there are any thoughts you might have on sort of materiality and sort of modes of production. Um, the the materiality, I, I really wanted to kind of paint, I, I originally made the, the coconut husk for an exhibition last year or the year before and I had just made it as a husk because I, uh, I liked just the formal composition of a husk painting, the irregularity of it, the kind of the alien supplantation of a sort of regular canvas um, and then I wanted to paint because I felt that paint would sort of pick up the textures and both sort of like seep through the canvas but then also sit quite like plastically on top of it. Um, and then in terms of the, um, the production, I would kind of, the way that they felt it is, um, it's, if you've ever like been to like a craft class where you felt wool, it's, it's very much like that. I went to like, um, the original ones that I made were actually like from coconuts where I had like a hundred coconuts left over from a performance work that I'd made so I didn't want to waste all the material um, and so I stripped all the husk, I made like mosaics out of the shell and then I made a video from the coconuts and then I made these um, husk paintings from the husk but for this project obviously it's quite large in scale um, and so I kind of had to think about a way to um, um, get a lot of husk and I just went on my fundings.com and ordered a lot of coconut husk, which to me felt like a, not disingenuous because it sort of speaks to um, 
uh, I guess, like the global and sort of industrialized production um, of materials. And um, coconuts themselves kind of have um, an agency there. They're, they float, they travel by ocean currents. They're, um, they're not just, they're sort of like a diaspora, but they're also a, a kind of colonizing agent. So, um, and then to buy them on Bunnings was meant that like, it's probably not just a coconut coming from the Philippines, it could also come from Sri Lanka or from Thailand. It's probably a whole lot of sort of fibers from different equatorial territories coming together and coalescing in these works. Um, and in that sense, it didn't have to be about like me being Filipino because I don't really want to talk about that anymore in my practice. I'm kind of a bit um, fatigued with um, identity politics. I find it really extractive and I don't think um, foregrounding in my work is like taking good care of me anymore. So I um, have sort of slowly been kind of receding that in my practice as much as I can. Yeah. Jody, thank you very much. Um, I might um, open up to any questions at this stage. Um, is it, does anyone have any questions for Jody whilst we have the last few moments? Yeah, the, the question relates to um, one work only, which is on the sort of the diagonal brown back of the ribbon or back of the, of the line, which actually um, is stamped with the text, artfully curated decline. Over to you, JD. Um, that was just a bit of fun, really. Um, I, came, I, I, I don't have a studio, so I literally borrowed um, a space where I work, and then I would like felt them at work and then bring them up to my one-bedroom apartment and then paint them. And then as soon as they're painted, they go in a stack on the wall and then I don't look at them again for a few months. So when I got here to Akka, this was the first time I was able to like experience all the paintings in this space. And so um, the wall painting was like very lovingly painted. And then as I kind of, originally I'd sort of thought I would just hang them on the horizontal line. Um, but there was just like a nice happenstance of the text itself being italicized and then being able to hang it on that wall meant that the italic text sort of sits vertically again. So um, it's just a little bit of fun, yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, JD. Um, will you please um, join me in thanking JD Reformer. And just, um, again, thank you all so much for joining us this afternoon. We will be having further artist talks on Saturday the 30th of July, and there are further public programs happening um, throughout the course of the exhibition, so please check out the ACCA website. And once again, um, I would really like to thank um, Betty Muffler, um, along with Priscilla Singer, um, Lucina Lane, and JD Reformer, and thank you also for joining us. To hear more programs like this, please subscribe to the ACCA Melbourne podcast wherever you get your podcasts and sign up to ACCA's newsletter at acca.melbourne for all new releases and forthcoming programs.